This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with all of us in this pre-Oscar week. We have our digital director in Los Angeles, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. We have our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Uh, it's very exciting. All of us will be in Los Angeles this weekend for the Oscars and the Vanity Fair Oscar parties. The first time ever, uh, which I don't know if that's going to make our Oscar predictions better or worse, but geographically will be at the heart of everything. And then next week, um, we can end the suspense now. We'll be recording an episode right after the Oscars, uh, all crammed together and exhausted as usual. So you can look forward to that. Um, and by then, we'll know everything. And right now, everything feels extremely up in the air. Um, we're going to do our Oscar predictions today uh, and then catch up on some of the news that's led into this, including the BAFTA and WGA Awards over the weekend. Um, but first, I feel like we have to start with what for me was a deeply confusing moment, and at least one person tweeted this at all of us, uh, when the Academy appeared to tweet out the list of Oscar winners in an effort to show off their interactive ballot for people to use, um, and then didn't clarify anything for a couple hours so that even though Oscar voting wasn't over yet, as we record this, it's still ongoing, um, it looked like they had revealed all the winners. Uh, did Was this kind of a classic debacle from the Academy that kind of sometimes can't seem to stop tripping over its own feet? Well, someone, I, I, this is like a deep like Twitter thing, um, but like someone, uh, I think Sean Fennessy at The Ringer tweeted out like, you know that like Seth Abramson, like I spent years reporting in this and then they just tweeted it out, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Right. As if the Academy, after all of our punditry for the past <laughs> year, basically, had just been like, oh, whoops, here it is. We picked the winners, um, don't worry about it. Yeah, but no, but it, it, it seems that it was... Uh, just a weird like technical glitch that it wasn't in any way reflective of the actual winners necessarily. But yeah, I was knee deep in my Oscars 20 years ago recap, just kind of insane. And then I went on Twitter for a little respite and saw that and was like, ah, <laughs> I cancel this whole event. <laughs> what if, what if the actual awards um, conform one-to-one to these predictions? That'd be really, oh that'd be really God. something. I mean, they were all, they were very solid predictions too. Like there wasn't anything totally weird um, that made you think like, whoa, okay, I guess, you know, this is just some random person. It felt authentic enough to feel real. They're all the big ones, you know, it's, uh, it's Joaquin Phoenix and Renee Zellweger and Brad Pitt and Laura Dern and, uh, you know, they gave best picture to Parasite and director to Sam Mendes, which probably is the opposite of my picks, but yeah. Somebody's paying attention, whoever filled this out, or they're the actual results, and um, it's the opposite of the Iowa thing. 
<laughs> well, that was the thing. Is this happening at the same time as Iowa? It was like, is there any logic in this world anymore? All systems are failing in front of our eyes. It's just, like, yeah, it's idiocracy. You know, <laughs> yeah, I thought that a big, a big tell that something weird was going on was that uh, Pete Buttigieg won Best Animated Short. <laughs> <laughs> he is Kitbull, though. That's his nickname. <laughs> okay, so that that was a debacle that was kind of swiftly at least fi- figured out. Um, over the weekend, there was the WGA Awards where um, Bang Joon-ho and Taika Waititi both took home awards. And then the BAFTAs where, um, as you might have expected, uh, 1917 had a pretty big night. Um, anything from either of those that you guys feels like is um, you know really affecting how we're going to do our predictions? I think the Jojo Rabbit thing for the WGA might have been the biggest story from my perspective. Yeah, that seemed to solidify that narrative. I also thought it was interesting that um, Brad Pitt couldn't be at the BAFTAs because of family obligations. So he had Margot Robbie read his speech and it opened with a Brexit joke that felt, I mean, obviously it was a pre-written speech because he wasn't going to be able to be there. But that felt like the most like, okay, you have a comedy team writing these things because mm. he was like, I've written, I hear you're new, newly single, join the club. And I'm just wondering, like, when, I mean, I think we're all assuming he's going to win on Sunday, um, when he does, if this sort of, like, very charming Brad Pitt stick that's been happening all season, if it will start to seem stale even in just the month that this has been happening. Oh, no. no. I don't think so. No way. <laughs> I, I think, I, you know, People Magazine asked him about this, actually, and he said, uh, like, they said, how are you this funny in all of your speeches? And he said, I have very funny friends. Um, so he's kind of acknowledged that was your theory, that, right, Mike? Yeah, he's he's acknowledged that he's not doing this by himself. I just want to salute again. I know we discussed this earlier. I want to salute Brad Pitt for doing this whole thing correctly, which yeah. is approaching every single one of the you know preceding awards as auditions, as kind of like signals to the Academy. Like I'm going to give a really great speech. You should be very happy to have me on your stage. Like we're going to have fun together. Um, the Oscar speech is the one that actually everyone remembers and will, you know, the sort of sad people like us will watch on YouTube 20 years from now. So, like, <laughs> that one, you got to get really, really right, you know? Uh, so I, I think he will. He's, he's, he's totally played the whole game. It's so funny, too. You know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to campaign. And then he's campaigned beautifully and perfectly. I mean, I want to give that uh, award to Laura Dern as well, not necessarily because like every uh, speech she's given has been full of zingers, but just like all the festival awards and all the other things that she's been like, she's been running such a long campaign for this and it did not peak too soon, which is something that you might worry about if you start campaigning so early. So uh, yeah, the, the supporting actors are just sort of like lock, lock, lock it up, you know? Yeah. Well, we wanted to start our predictions by talking about actors because those all of those uh, races feel pretty locked up. Um, so Joaquin Phoenix also had a big moment at the BAFTAs where he kind of addressed head on the lack of diversity in the nominees. And it was, you know, sort of of a theme with at the Golden Globes where he talked about veganism, but maybe even more pointed. And it seemed like it was pretty well received. I mean, I guess there might be some Oscar voters who were like, how dare you tell us who to nominate? But uh, he also, in his weird way, has done a pretty good job of campaigning. Yeah, I was speaking to a colleague from The Guardian about this um, and, you know, kind of about the two-pronged strategies for speeches this year. And it's either you go political and address the times we live in and the times the Academy or the Baptist or whatever exist in, or you do the pit route and are funny. But the thing about both of those approaches is you need to get them right. You need to Mm -hmm. be genuinely funny and charming and your politics 
if you want to go that route, they can't be warmed over. They have to be serious, direct, correct. Like they really have to kind of speak to the moment in, an, in a potent way. And I think that Phoenix's speech did at the BAFTAs, though I saw some people on Twitter, Kara Brown, the writer, saying a speech like this doesn't mean anything unless it's backed up by action. So in a weird way, the effectiveness of, of that speech will only be sort of judged, you know, whatever Joaquin Phoenix does next in terms of a project or, and whatnot. But yeah, I think it's interesting to watch these two very different approaches to, you know, a multiple win award season and to see how, you know, effective they've both been. Mm-hmm. And to, to plus that thought, Richard, I think that if you're going to go political in every speech, it can't smack of, oh, you're just doing this, you know, on the stage. And if, and if anything, Joaquin Phoenix has like unimpeachable, like, uh, I actually care about these messages that I'm sending, um, you know, bona fides. There's yeah, he a, went and protested at a chicken plant, like right after the Golden Globes. In his tux. <laughs> I think <laughs> I it was the SAG. Part. I think he left the SAG Awards in his tux and wore that tux to uh, protest. I was just reading a piece on IndieWire. He also is like, is the one who has been like sort of privately lobbying for all these award shows to go vegan though that came directly from Joaquin Phoenix um, and almost all have capitulated so I just I think that's an interesting um, according to the IndieWire article that I just read he uh, it was sort of like he knows that he has bargaining power here as the front runner and so he used it to you know get the the snacks of the Dolby vegan so there you go well, and he was raised, right? He was raised vegan and his family were like, you know, vegan hippie activists from day one. So, oh, I, yeah. right? I mean, I think his entire life he's been steeped in this. I, yeah. I don't know his diversity credentials, but certainly <laughs> on the on the plant-based food point, you know, there is there is nothing to say that he's not incredibly sincere and 100% invested in that. Yeah. And it was interesting in his Baptist speech that he brought up inclusivity on sets. Like, it wasn't just like, you awards bodies, you need to nominate actors of color. He was like, we have to make sure that there's more diversity on the films that we work on, which, you know, I don't think he said the term inclusion writer, but it reminded me of, you know, what Frances McDormand said in her speech a couple years ago. And that's just an interesting way that, like, he has a lot more power over that than he does over what the BAFTAs nominate, and that he made it about something that he and other, like, stars have power over. Um, You know, I don't know what his reputation for this is, but it did seem more active than what he could have done. Well, also, I mean, not only are their personalities different, but also there's something different between being in the best actor or actress race versus supporting, right? Like supporting, it's perfectly good to kind of come in, be amusing, you know, and like move on. And and I think for those lead things, you do expect something a little more um, meaningful, I guess. What's, what's our analysis of Renee's campaign then? Because like, for me, it felt like, okay, done deal since almost Telluride, basically. And what have we been seeing her do in order to ensure that that done deal stays a done deal? Speaking with a thick Southern accent. <laughs> yeah. She's going for the charm offensive, I guess. But I just And the like, just... I'm happy to be back offensive, which I think is like the one theme she's got. One thing to say about, about just going back to Phoenix for a second is I think there's an interesting, not inversion exactly, but a sort of a work around the politics of a lot of diehard fans of Joker who are not necessarily mm-hmm. people who align with language about, you know, inclusion and animal rights and all that stuff. Like, this is not by any means all of its fans. It's a, it's a pretty broadly popular film. But a lot of the diehards online are sort of alt-righty kind of men, honestly. And I've seen just kind of anecdotally searching on Twitter, like people are unhappy about it. But I wonder if in a way there's something strategic about trying, about Phoenix trying to not distance himself from the movie Joker, 
but distance it himself from its perceived politics based on a lot of its fans, I guess. Yeah, I think he's done a really good job of that because even if you don't like Joker, like even, you know, for people who didn't necessarily like the movie in the beginning, like Joaquin Phoenix is undeniably great in this. And if he shows up and is like interesting and like at his SAG Award speech, he was just really like charming and winning talking about his other um, nominees. So he has this this vibe about him that is very easy to support no matter how you feel about the movie. Well, and there aren't too many. I'm not saying there are none, but there are not many alt-right Oscar voters, Right. And we, right. we always come back to, like, uh, basically, like every year, if there's an ideological division in the Academy this year, it's, a, it's an intramural sort of, you know, progressive battle between old-fashioned establishment progressives and, and, like, you know, upstart revolutionary progressives. So, yeah, trying to sort of take that out of the equation is definitely helpful for him if, if he's doing it, you know. He, he probably is doing it somewhat intentionally, right? Yeah. Um, do we want to pivot back to Renee for a minute? Mike, you were suggesting that like she might be the most vulnerable of any of the acting candidates in that she's not actually vulnerable at all. Um, what makes you feel like she has any potential for upset? Well, I think that if there's any potential, it's because people are not that into the movie. And I guess in a way, you know, her her speeches, she has not like laid down a serious kind of track of like don't you want to see me give my oscar speech at, at least to the way that the others have if, it seems to me she's almost more like method acting renee as judy a little bit and and i feel like the whole basis of this award is you know judy had a kind of vulnerable comeback and renee is having a vulnerable comeback and the kind of parallel of that is what's interesting about it and, and why people are invested in it. I, I still think she's like 98.5% going to win, but it feels like the others are like 99.5%. So um, I don't know if what you guys think. Well, I think, you know, the only difference between her right now and Glenn Close a year ago is that Glenn Close's competition had won a Golden Globe as well. So Renee has that in her plus column in that, like, Aquafina is not nominated, you know, so there's no chance that, like, her 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 co-winner at the Golden Globes is going to be a competition. But, you know, so, I, I mean, I, but I remember a year ago going into this thing thinking that, if anything, Glenn Close had it sewn up, you know, because mm-hmm. based on the past wins and all that. So, so I don't know. I was talking to people at Sundance who were also saying something similar, Mike, that, like, of the four acting nominees, this is where a surprise might happen. The problem is I just don't know who that surprise would be. I think the best guess would be Saoirse Ronan, but I just don't know if, that, if Little Women has a momentum, so... Um, I think she's in a more Rizal Weicker's in a more secure spot than Close was in hindsight. But again, I remember, I remember standing on the striped white and green carpet of the VF party, hearing Olivia Coleman's name read and gasping, like just being—it <laughs> yeah. was such a surprise. So, well, I, I think right. I mean, Olivia Coleman is that actor's actor, which which always kind of poses a threat. Not to say there aren't actors actors here too. I also feel like this may be ridiculous, but I feel like Glenn Close is just very clearly, like, extremely strong and tough. And there's something... It would almost be viciously cruel to pull this rug out from Renee Zellweger at this stage of the game. I just... there's mm. it, it almost feels like it would be an act of, of really serious cruelty. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it was... Wow. It's, it, it, I, I just can't imagine people having the stomach to be like, you know what, forget her. But I don't know. 
Yeah, I, I feel like if there was going to be a real like twist in this, it was going to be in the Critics Awards. I think I've said this a couple times before. Like, it didn't feel like there was an obvious like uh, alternate actress for the critics to rally behind, and they really didn't. Like a handful, you know, Lupita Nyong'o won at New York Film Critics Circle, um, isn't nominated now. So it, the insurgent, like Cynthia Erivo, was kind of my pick as a potential number two, um, partly because of the you know outcry around the overwhelming whiteness of all the nominees, and she's got the kind of like big rising star. She's got a Tony. She's like an, kind of an exciting person to put your stamp on, and is such a central part of the movie that she's in, which I guess all the nominees are. Um, but as you were saying, Mike, like it doesn't feel like there's enough desire to take this away from Renee to maybe hand it to somebody else. And that's how I feel about supporting. Not that it wasn't already sort of leaning so heavily in Laura Dern's favor, but like once Jennifer Lopez wasn't even nominated, you're like, okay, well then the idea that there'd be like a wacky upset is out the window. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah. And re- let's not forget that Laura Dern is like a, a governor in the Academy right, right, and right. one of the most beloved people there, you know? Yeah. So if she were going to not win one, it wouldn't be this one. I agree. And Katie, are you are you implying by saying that Arivo could be the spoiler that all of the Academy is listening to Little Gold Men's sister podcast, uh, still watching The Outsider because <laughs> Cynthia Arivo's on that yeah. show? Yeah, you guys you have been her the still watching Bump. This is the new phase. Our Rocket Man Street Team efforts didn't pay off, so we've pivoted to uh, Cynthia Arivo Street mean, Team efforts. I'm pretty sure Richard and I got Mahershala Ali his second Oscar last year. So, <laughs> For sure, detective. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think about that parallel that Mahershala Ali's True Detective uh, is like really roughly equivalent to Cynthia Revo being on The Outsider right now. So yeah, McConaughey's McConaughey's True Detective a couple of years ago. You know, get that get that January HBO Sunday night show, and you're in the <laughs> you never know what might clear. happen. <laughs> I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again at an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Um, all right. Well, then, uh, jumping into some of the technical categories. Actually, you know, I, I haven't thought about a lot of these in a while. And looking at the best visual effects, it felt forever like The Irishman. It has all the de-aging in it. But this now feels like one of many technical categories that 1917 is just going to run all over. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that tends to happen, I think, with the technical categories where things just get, you know, one movie kind of gets the whole bundle package. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, again, I'm watching the, the Oscars 20 years ago and, like, The Matrix won four technical prizes because I think people were just like, oh, yeah, that's an easy box to check and I can just repeat that three more times, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that 1917 has the added benefit of being a contender, and a, a strong contender for, for Best Picture. So, yeah, I, I see that kind of making the... Um, the big charge kind of helped by a, a lot of these kind of below the line categories. Look, I confess I'm just looking at uh, Gold Derby right now, but a lot of people have Avengers Endgame here for VFX. Like at least half. Which side do you fall on, Mike? Well, I do think that there is, you know, we talk about the spread the wealth mentality and the fact that there are a lot of people, you know, even in the academy who make their money on big movies, you know. I, I even wonder if this is one of the things that hurt the Irishman in the end in terms or, or, or seems to be hurting the Irishman. We don't know if it's gonna win any Oscars, but it might not win any Oscars. And it may be partly that that people are kind of saying like, well give us a break, Marty. You know, some of us are out here trying to make movies that people go watch in theaters. Mm-hmm. Um and and so I don't know. I, I I could see an impulse to kind of be like, all right, 1917 is going to definitely get cinematography, probably going to get picture and or director, um, and some other stuff. But like, let's look at some of the more popcorn stuff for some of the other technical. I was categories. looking at the uh, the motion picture sound editors have their Golden Reel awards, and I was like, what you know, just sort of just to see like where the technical awards were going on a, on a guild status and like uh, Victoria Alonso who is this top Marvel uh, producer won the like filmmaker award there which is so interesting to me and yeah you're not seeing I don't think you're seeing like a large consensus around even 1917 uh, in the sort of uh, guild awards I could definitely see this being a space where they're like, let's give the film that made the absolute most money in the world ever at least one award, right? Like, yeah, you know. yeah. My one counter argument is that no Marvel movie has ever won in visual effects category, which is really surprising. When, like they're Yet. nominated pretty much every year. <laughs> um, wow. I mean, even like Black Panther uh, wasn't nominated, which is wild. Anyway, uh, so that's a that's a data point that I would say would hurt Marvel. Yeah, I'm also just kind of thinking about, you know, because like everyone in the Academy votes on all these awards. It's not like the nominations where it's just branches. And I'm just yeah. trying to imagine like the lover of a certain kind of movie going down their ballot. I just don't, I see them picking 1917 over uh, a Marvel movie. Mm-hmm. But, you know, maybe I'm, I'm with you. Uh, do you want to repeat that for the sound editing and mixing categories, which um, have Ford vs. Ferrari and Joker and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in the mix as Best Picture nominees? So that might change the math, or maybe not. I would still say 1917 for both. Well, I think this is a good opportunity for us to mention that the, all four of us are going to be in L.A. because we're presenting these categories at the Oscars, which is really exciting. Yes. Yeah, we're going to make our best <laughs> vroom vroom car noises out there on stage. <laughs> so it's what the people tune in for, right? We're going to goose those ratings. <laughs> I still don't even understand the difference between these two categories. Every year it gets explained to me, and I understand it for five minutes. Would you like me to do it again? Because I wrote yes. a story about this this year. Um, yes. I talked to the um, sound mixer for Ford versus Ferrari, who kind of explained a lot of it to me. And what was interesting is he's one of the people who, I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, there was a story saying that some sound editors were um, campaigning to combine these branches, um, partly because technology has made it so that they really overlap in a way that they wouldn't have 20 years ago. Right. So sound editing is more roughly hunting down the sounds that are going to be in it, whether it's like fully recording or in the case of Ford versus Ferrari, they had to go find the car engines that they would use. Um, it's recording the sound in the field, kind of making 
all of the sounds that you will hear. And then sound mixing is mixing them and kind of picking the levels and doing re-recording and, you know, figuring out how you hear everything. So in Ford versus Ferrari, there's all these scenes where like the engines will die out and you'll hear the dialogue or it will go silent and you'll hear the score. Um, and like those things can work in tandem, but that's roughly how they break down. Got it. Okay. I feel like sound, sound editing, right, is it, people consider it a race between 1917 and Ford versus Ferrari. And this is the category where I feel like Ford versus Ferrari has the best chance of getting yeah. in, right? Yeah. I mean, the sound in that movie is pretty fantastic. Yeah. And people have a real appreciation for that movie's um, commitment to like practical things, you know, like I, I'm thinking more in terms of visual effects where like it's it's a lot of shots of actual cars driving, you know, and I just I think that mm-hmm. maybe there's just that sort of craftsmanship appreciation um, could really benefit the movie here. Right. There's some there's some notion that it might win like film editing as well for the long uh, races that it did. Well, um, and especially because 1917 isn't nominated in right. editing because right, right. of the weird like thing where people are like it's not edited it's one take which i continue to think is insane but that's insane um let's talk about editing then uh, in the technical categories it is interesting that 1917 isn't there parasite is um which when on nominations morning we all took that as a really good sign of its strength um i really want to pick parasite for this i still we'll talk about this with best picture i still feel so nervous about getting excited about its chances but i don't know maybe i'll just throw caution to the wind and say parasite are you not excited about the prospect of a man named Tom Eagles winning for Jojo Rabbit? <laughs> I mean, I support him and his name in every way. I, I just saw Ford v. Ferrari last night, I confess. I finally saw it. And uh, I would like to see it win here or one of the sound things. I'd like to see it get an Oscar because it was a cool, you know, they, they did a great job of getting you excited. The best parts of the movie are the races, I think. Yeah. Um, and so that would be fun. And Parasite would also be would also be great, but I feel like it's. It, I do think Parasite's going to do well in some other categories. Yeah, and editing can often go to like big flashy movies that aren't necessarily um, best picture contenders. So there is something for Ford. Ford versus Ferrari is a best picture nominee. I don't think anyone totally expects it to win, but like Hacksaw Ridge won, Mad Max won, Gravity won, like stuff that um, that's like kind of rewarded on a technical level. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think those are all three great examples, Katie, of why I think Ford Ferrari is going to win. Oh, good call. Um, okay, so maybe production design is where Parasite can win. That's my, um, I'm kind of obsessed with the house in that. And I, that win would be very exciting for me. But there's some much flashier competition, which worries me. Yeah, did you see that? There was, um, I think it was either an article or just a tweet with some pictures about just how much design and maybe this relates more to visual effects, but like went into that house where like there actually wasn't a second story when they were mm-hmm. filming it and they was sort of added in post, but like, but you think, but like, then again, maybe that's more visual effects, but in terms of production design, you think about how meticulous that house has to be, how, how this, this just like shrine to the wealth that this one family wants and the other family has, like it, it's so carefully done that I hope that there's some appreciation expressed for that. For me, I wonder if it's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood only because like that is such a convincing like turn back time of Hollywood and the people who live there and are so reverent about the town and its history might really like be taken by what that film accomplished there. 
Yeah. yeah, and I think there must have been something going on with that pool and the flamethrower. <laughs> that could X out the parasite house thing. No, I, I agree. I think I think once upon a time in Hollywood, it just it puts you in a world. That's part of the fun of that movie. Is like it's kind of shaggy, but it's fun to live in that in or be in that in that world that they've created, and that like comes with a lot of attention to detail. Well, also, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a pretty popular movie, but as we'll get into, like, it's not seeming like it's going to win a ton, despite how incredibly beautiful and well-produced it is. So that might be a good place if you do want to spread the wealth to kind of uh, toss something to a movie that you really like but can't give anything but Brad Pitt. Especially because, you know, I had been expecting it to win screenplay after the Golden Globes, but it really seems like Parasite is kind of moving in and taking taking that screenplay spot away. Yeah. So it, it may maybe that's how this will split with Parasite taking screenplay and Once Upon a Time taking um, production design. Yeah, we'll get to we'll get to screenplays. Um, I want to get through some of the like smaller um, technical prizes first. Makeup and hairstyling is probably bombshell, but the, you know the same guy Katsuhiro who did uh, Gary Oldman for Darkest Hour. I mean, it is impressive. It is. I wish they hadn't done it, but they did it well. <laughs> <laughs> You asked if you could do it, never to think if you should. <laughs> um, okay, and then cinematography. Uh, Mike, you're you're writing that up for our official predictions, which are going to go live on Thursday. And you thanked um, our Hollywood editor, Hillary Buses, for giving you the easy one because it's, it's Roger Deakins. It's so easy that it almost is a problem for Sam Mendes' director uh, bid, in my opinion. Mm. Um, Roger Deakins, after many, many years of being nominated and not winning, finally did win and is going to win. Like it should, There is nothing more more certain. Even the acting things are not more certain than this. I will, I will put, I will lay it down. He, uh, yeah, it's just like that. That's kind of the story of this movie at some level is, you know, the way that it's shot, the fact that it's one take, the accomplishment and achievement that that requires. So, yeah. That, I, I, unless anybody disagrees, I think that's a you can bank that one. No. For me, I, I wouldn't have been completely convinced were it not for the nighttime sequence, which I just think is some of the most astonishingly beautiful filmmaking I've seen in a long time. So, yeah. It's I, funny that we're yeah. going to completely forget that Roger Deakins won an Oscar for Blade Runner 2049, which is a movie <laughs> that basically doesn't exist. But it's also a beautiful movie. It <laughs> is. I think about it, I'm like, what a beautiful movie. Some very cool rain rain scenes in that, yeah. uh, apocalyptic rain scenes. It's funny that I can go from like just a couple of years ago, like R- Roger Deakins has never won. He's been nominated so many times. What an outrage. Then he wins. And now I'm like, oh, Roger Deakins? Like, come on. Here you <laughs> you know? It happens so quickly. <laughs> Well, speaking of the next category, I hope we someday get to that point for Diane Warren, who is nominated in Best Original Song uh, for the 14th time, maybe even more than that. She is a real powerhouse here. Uh, But she's nominated for the song um, I'm Standing With You from Breakthrough, which is um, I don't think is going to win. But this song, I wrote a story about this for our first special issue and got kind of obsessed with it. And I'm kind of bummed by how it's just like... There's nothing really exciting in this category for me, although I do think Elton John and Bernie Taupin are going to win, and who can begrudge them that? I mean, it's not like that song isn't blowing my hair back the way that maybe like the song from Wild Rose did. But um, but it'll be fun to see Elton John and Bernie Toppin up there and just being like having the best time. And, you know, Elton John is like thrown Oscar parties for so many. I You know, that's I, I like I like it. Uh, you know, yeah. Rocket Man, come on, come through. One one award for for the great <laughs> for all of cinematic achievement that is Rocket Man. Well, and it was so weird when they said at the Globes that they had never won an award together before. Yeah, that yeah. just is bizarre. So I feel yeah. like that, we'll we'll give him this award. Let him go up there and take it. 
Someone yeah. saved our life tonight. Yeah, if you want to talk about like Mike's theory about like making the case, making the case why you winning an Oscar will be a really special moment for everyone. Elton John going up and saying that was like one of the <laughs> yes. smartest things he could have done, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. He knows well what he's played. doing. Um, and then an original score, there's another many-time nominee who could potentially win. Thomas Newman has somehow never won an Oscar, despite uh, definitely in the double digits of nominations. For a while, I thought that uh, Hildur uh, Gundner's daughter, uh, who won the Golden Globe, is, you know, the one woman nominated in this category uh, for Joker, was going to take it away. But I'm starting to think maybe 1917 will carry uh, Thomas Newman to his first Oscar. Yeah, I really liked the narrative about Gwanda Daughter winning because I think she'd be only the third woman to win a score Oscar. Um, yeah. And and it is an interesting, you know, piece of music or pieces of music. And I liked her speech at the Globes. But yeah, I just feel like there seems to be this very strong 1917 riptide that is just kind of taking everything with it. Maybe not necessarily everything, everything, but like... I, I can just see some voters just kind of being like, oh, yep, and that too, that too, that, you know, and, and score is part of that. Um, and who and doesn't is, want Thomas you know, Newman to have an Oscar? It's like exactly, John and Bernie Tobin. You know, he's the deacons of this year or something. <laughs> I still, I'm still going to stick with Joker here. Yeah, I'm torn on this one. I mean, because the, the, the story of the Joker score is that they used it, right, in, in crafting the film in a way that they don't normally do. It, it was a heavily kind of stitched into the process mm. um so but i don't know i do think that uh that 1917 has a very good persuasive team uh working on it and they they really do want thomas newman to win this yeah uh, and then beat his cousin randy for and create a family feud yes. that will last that's something I, I just learned this year <laughs> oh it's the best <laughs> and they're, they're both like very chill about it they're just like yeah funny how that works i guess neither of them really needs more validation they're both very successful speaking of randy newman and again i'm going to plug my oscars 20 years ago post it is fascinating that i'm watching this 20 year old ceremony and an original song from toy story 2 is nominated and then 20 years later (laughs) another song from another toy story movie is again nominated. It's just like, and, and Randy Newman is, is very much a part of that. Um, so, you know, I, I think he, he doesn't need this award. Um, I think he can, he can give it to his cousin just to, you know, he'll be fine with that. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Um, Okay, uh, just moving up the list into documentary feature. Um, Richard, you really championed Honeyland early. I think it was on your top 10 list of the year, and I watched it and was totally fascinated by it. Um, It's a weird category. There isn't like some big blockbuster the way there has been in the last few years in documentary. I've been giving the edge to American Factory um, because all the other films are in foreign languages, and American Factory is only half in a foreign language, which can't hurt. Um, It's a Netflix release. They've done well in this category. Um, But I don't know. I don't feel that certain about it. Yeah, I'm suddenly feeling like For Sama is kind of the front runner. It's won some lead up prizes. And I just, I don't know, like it's about something big, but it's also very personal. And I don't know, I I just, that to me feels like it could kind of upset. I think Honeyland, gorgeous as it is, might be a little too alienating for some voters. American Factory with the Netflix of it all might be a little too obvious for some voters. Um, The Cave is really powerful, but a hard sit. Edge of Democracy, while very 
you know, relevant to right now. It's it's a movie about um, the really scary political things happening in Brazil. I don't know. I just think Fursama has that really emotional component that will attract the most votes. I haven't had the guts to sit through that one yet. It seems uh, intense. Oh, it's horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I still think they're going to give it to the Obamas, right? I mean, American Factory. I don't know. Uh, we'll see. I feel like there are, so I, I, you know, I, I, I don't have enough data points to make this case, but I feel like while there's this weird resistance to Netflix in some of the major categories, I feel like in some of the other categories, like documentary or animated feature, which we'll talk about, there are ways in which the Netflix, like, charm offensive or, or storm and drying or whatever you want to call it, is, like, working. The, the extreme muscle that they have in their worst department. So while, you know, it may not have helped the Irishman or marriage story, et cetera, you know, get to where it needs to get, maybe it's working on these other films a little lower down the list, you know? Well, and you think about how many, how many documentaries Netflix programs that aren't, you know, necessarily Oscar eligible, like Making a Murderer or Cheer or any of the stuff that they do that is in the documentary format. Um, You know, I know everyone votes on that, but Netflix equals documentaries is kind of an easy argument to make. And also, I know that everyone's supposed to watch every nominated movie, but like realistically, it's easier to watch the stuff that's on Netflix than the things where you have to track down a screener or whatever. I mean, it's just like you can watch it anywhere at any time. So I feel like they get watched more. Edge of Democracy is also on Netflix, and it's really good. Um, and uh, also kind of, it's not a tough sit, but it's, you know, it's a little grim to watch, but uh, worth it. Yeah. Uh, Joanna, do you want to talk us through Animated Feature? I sure do, Katie. <laughs> um, the Annie Awards, uh, you know, happened uh, a couple weeks ago, and Netflix swept the heck out of those animation awards with seven wins for Klaus and three wins for I Lost My Body. They're two nominees. So even though there was an early Golden Globes win for Laika's Missing Link, um, you know, which felt like, oh my gosh, maybe this is it. The momentum is, po- is coalescing around Klaus, which also won the BAFTA. So this is Netflix's charming, uh, you know, holiday uh, film. It's a great film. I would love to see it win. But that, you know, despite the fact that Toy Story 4 is in there, um, I think I think we're going to see a Klaus win. Uh, on and Sunday. it's about Klaus Kinski? Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. That charming <laughs> yeah. holiday tale about Klaus Kinski. Yes, yes, yes. It is a it's a Christmas movie or a movie about Santa Claus voice, with the voice of Jason Schwartzman, which I find amusing and, um, and, and part of the charm. Yeah. So, you know, this is this is once again, you know, we have a we have a story about this in our um you know, awards issue, but you know, this Netflix really went for it with their animation efforts, like, you know, both in acquisition wise um, and in campaigning wise. So it's really paying off for them uh, in a big way. Richard and Mike, do you guys put your money behind anything but Klaus? I'm, I maintain a something for Missing Link, even though it's, um, you know, a smaller movie in some ways, um, just because it's so like technically interesting, but then, then again, so is Klaus. I'm sorry, did you say that Jason Schwartzman is Santa Claus in this movie? No, uh, J.K. Simmons is Santa Claus. Jason Schwartzman is the guy who helps him. I was going to say, I cannot support any movie that tells me I'm old enough that Jason Schwartzman can play Santa. (laughs) (laughs) This this category um, seems to have gotten kind of weirdly bloody this year. Yeah. Um, I would not be shocked if Toy Story 4 ended up winning. But we shall see. It's a it's a really interesting race, actually, because um, I think that, you know Netflix's efforts at the Annies and stuff have really freaked people out, and are are there's some controversy swirling around all this. So it'll be really interesting to see how how the Academy voters um, uh, decide to go here. Yeah, yeah, it's always it's always fascinating when a category 
yes, we're talking about the specific five movies, but it's really about something much bigger. You know, like it's about a sort of like studio war or an existential war between a platform and another platform. And then that that seems to be somehow coalesced around animated feature this year. Well, and the thing about these movies is, you know, the anime, like Toy Story 4 has to make like a billion dollars to be successful, you know. And so there's a real there's a real notion that that's an important thing to protect this idea of the big studio you know, animated feature that's family friendly, that travels around the world, that puts, you know, gives a lot of people jobs. And so it is a place where the Netflix kind of, oh, yeah, we just put it on the streaming service and we either do or don't say how many people watched it. I, I do think there is a kind of anxiety in Hollywood about about this kind of reliable hit making thing, um, you know, being vulnerable. I have a I have a counter argument to that, and that yeah. is, you know, I've been thinking about this category as Katie can attest for a while now, and I I was wondering almost if Into the Spider versus Win last year has a, has a lot to do with these other these non Disney studios feeling like this is a category they could grab, you know, whereas yes. in the past often it feels like a foregone conclusion for Disney, but the fact that Frozen Two wasn't even nominated is a big part of this whole narrative, right? And then I have to wonder if the way in which Disney is somewhat gobbling up a lot of Hollywood also has people nervous. And so this idea of like kind of hitting them where it hurts, like this is their category. Animated feature is, is the Disney category and Disney acquiring, like having not only acquired Pixar years ago, but like, you know, picking up Fox and stuff like that. It's like, okay, well, what if it's not just all Disney all the time, you know? And and so that was sort of my idea. Not that Netflix is like this tiny little underdog. So maybe that's where, uh, uh, Katie's like argument comes into play, but I, I just, it felt, it felt uh, relevant to Disney's power. What was going on in this category this year? Yeah, um, it's super so. interesting. I mean, it's two, the, that's two of the prime contenders to sort of gobble up everything, right? Uh, right. Disney and Netflix. So it's, it's a very interesting place where the kind of rubber's meeting the road. You vote for the one you hope to work for when the place that employs you is, <laughs> yeah. is acquired. And Netflix has been actively uh, trying to elbow into this oh, like animation world in a way that doesn't feel like it quite overlaps with what Disney in do- is doing in terms of like acquiring international. You know, like Klaus is a Spanish production. I Lost My Body is a French production. I Lost My Body was at Cannes. You know, like Netflix is trying to like edge into animation in in a different like corner of it than, yeah. than Disney has um, mastered. So I just think that's very interesting. And we shouldn't forget that Disney Plus has their own Klaus Kinski biopic coming out next year. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's called Klaus Bull, right? Like that's, yeah. 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 Uh, okay, we are now... Oh, no, sorry. We have one more. Best International Feature. Uh, it's going to be Parasite. Like, I mean, it'd be fun if Pain and Glory swept in and got this, but Parasite's going to win. You can... Yeah, this is, this is making me... Um, feel good that I know that director Bong is going to be walking around with at least one Oscar all night. And so then then the question becomes, will it be two? Will it be three? How many, how many Oscars will he be walking around with? Well, maybe that leads us to the original screenplay category, (laughs) um, which uh, Mike, as you mentioned, uh, it now feels like Parasite is kind of uh, collecting some energy there. Um, I mean, who could really resist those pictures of, um, Bong Joon-ho and Taika Waititi walking through the airport together with their BAFTA awards and like Amazing. I don't know if there was a picture of them with their de- yeah they, they took a picture with their WGA awards too it was uh, it was incredibly charming yeah I mean the, when, the, when they win the WGA they win the BAFTA 
it starts to feel like this is going to happen. And it's obviously exciting that it's a, it's a film not written in English. It's so well-constructed. It's so, I mean, one of the things I think about this film is as we're looking at, you know, the Democratic primary and stuff, it, it really, it, it attacks this notion of um, inequality in a really kind of fun, interesting, daring way. Like the, the, it's not like the poor people are pure good and the rich people are pure evil. It's just that like the hellish situation that results when there's massive inequality. Um, so, but it's, I think it's really relevant, but it's also, it's not really mainly operating at that level. It's operating as an incredibly surprising, hilarious, crazy, um, disturbing thriller. You know, so yeah. uh, so it's it's a real accomplishment, and it would be a perfectly great uh, justified win, I think. And in doing so, it tells two comforting stories. One that a movie about the difficulties of you know life on Earth right now, in terms of economics in particular, can also be entertaining. And a foreign language film can also be entertaining. Plenty of people already know both of those things, but I don't know. Just Parasite seems like you both get to reward a deserving movie, you know, from a country that has been really not represented at all at the Academy Awards previous to this. That tells an important message, but also you're like, yeah, but it was also super fun to watch, you know. And I think it's rare that a movie like that comes along. It's funny. I really thought this is the category that Tarantino, like that this is going to be, you know, if best picture and best director were not going to go to Tarantino, that like he was definitely going to win screenwriting. So like, it, it, you know, it's it's all on Brad and production design, perhaps for that film. And that's fascinating. So, yeah. yeah. How about adapted? Where are you guys uh, thinking on that? I mean, if if the bong narrative is something, then the Taika narrative is something, right? Like, how is yeah. it not the same yeah. narrative? You know, and, 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 and once again, I don't know if this has anything to do with anything, but if the Oscars is looking for opportunity to not have like an all white lineup of winners, you know, Taika and, and Bong Joon-ho winning uh, in this cat- in these categories um, helps their case a little bit there, so... Yeah, I mean, it seems like the only the only threat to Taika Waititi for Jojo Rabbit is um, is Greta Gerwig for Little Women, which would be you know also a good thing for the Academy to give a woman a screenwriting award for the first time in a long time, way too long. But it does feel like uh, the Jojo Rabbit narrative has has gelled. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm still holding out hope for Little Women. Little Women has been such a puzzle this entire season. Like there was the whole thing where we were worried men weren't seeing it, so it wouldn't get nominated at all. And then it got all these great nominations, and now it's kind of feeling like it might go home empty-handed. And um, as Guy Lodge, a uh, friend of all of ours, tweeted, it's been 12 years since a woman won a screenwriting award in any category, even as a co-writer, which I had not realized what a drought that was. Um, and it looks possible that it will repeat this year, and that's really needs fixing. And, and and to make it feel even further in the past, the person who won was Diablo Cody for Juno. Like, doesn't that feel like yeah. that was 30 years ago? <laughs> well, yeah. it felt it's, like it was like, oh, we're ushering in this exciting era of, like, women screenwriters yeah. with a voice and then nothing. Wait, but I'm looking at the adaptive screenplay list, Katie, that we have on VF.com. Why aren't you credited as co-writing The Two Popes? Oh, I mean, I, you know, I, Anthony McCartney and I really uh, negotiated the WGA credit for a long time, and um, I Jeez. lost, but, you know, I wish him the best. Two popes, one writer. <laughs> <laughs> Another scandal out of the WGA. Yeah. Um, yeah, Katie, condolences for your popes. Yeah. So. Well, you know what? I honestly, I like the two popes. I feel good about it getting nominations. I don't feel strongly about it necessarily winning any of these categories. Um, which brings us to director. We uh, we have been going back and forth on the 1917 Parasite thing. 
I did the director prediction for our um, VF.com Oscar predictions. I went pretty solidly with Sam Mendes. Um, but, Mike, it sounds like you're maybe uh, waffling on a different split. Here's what I think. So much attention has gone to director Bong, first of all, and Roger Deakins, second of all. And Sam Mendes is, is not the most gregarious guy alive, right? And I think people love this film. I, I just feel like it's going to win picture, 1917, uh, but that there's a lot of excitement around director Bong. He has become a celebrity this year in, in a way that, you know, is really interesting and, and sort of just like there, there's a few of these every year and he's one of them. As I've said before, and I know this is moronic, but they're literally director is in the name that everybody calls him. And if you look at the list of people like Scorsese and Tarantino, you kind of think like, hey, if I had the chance to give one to Scorsese for Goodfellas or Tarantino for Pulp Fiction, like that's what this is, an opportunity to do that. By the way, the Academy didn't do that for either of those films. But this would be a chance to kind of do that, get somebody in their prime, get someone when they're making something incredible. You know, and again, like maybe maybe you end up splitting the vote because because 1917 obviously has a ton of enthusiasm for it. I don't know. That's that's my feeling. My gut is that is that Parasite will win director and 17 will win um, picture. I'm going to I'm going to hop on uh, Mike's bandwagon. <gasps> I'd agree with him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, isn't there an analog from last year in terms of Roma winning Best Director for Alfonso Cuaron but not winning Picture? Yes. Um, you know, I think that voters, you know, a foreign language film has never won Best Picture. Um, it's rare that they even get nominated. I mean, it's just, it's been more frequent since they expanded the category of Best Picture to, to a potential 10 nominees. But yeah, I just, I think that v- whatever the institutional ethos at the Academy is more comfortable with giving a foreign language film a Best Director award than they are uh, Best Picture. So I can see that split happening. That said, Katie, I'm on your side. Do you think it's uh, <laughs> 1917 for Picture and Director? Yeah. Yeah, I do too. I can't, I just, I, I would be ecstatic if Parasite won. I can't let myself... Expect it, because I feel like this is the time of year where we start being like, what surprises might happen? Like, what is the insurgence going to happen? And, like, it happened with Moonlight, and it feels like it might never happen again. (laughs) I know. It happened with Moonlight, it feels like it might never happen again. But, like, it felt so good when it happened with Moonlight. And, like, it was... So, like, what's what what will it hurt, Katie, if you just get, like... If you just put it where your heart is? But if I can't brag about my correct Oscar predictions, (laughs) what do I have? Uh, your shiny hair, yeah. The counter argument might be Get Out, you know, a few years ago where Jordan Peele directed it but also wrote it and got screenplay, which we think is going to happen. And then Bong will also have foreign language. So I, I could I could easily see people saying, like, that's enough already, you know? That's a lot of Oscars to carry around all night. So I don't know. But I, I just, I don't know. This is my, my gut. I'm going to go with it. But I think that... Um, it's at least an interestingly up in the air, somewhat up in the air category this year. Yeah, but as you as you know, I love 1917, and I I really want 1917 to win Best Picture. I'm really happy with that. I'd be happy with the Parasite win, and this is like the first time in years where I'd be happy with either of the two frontrunners winning. So I'm feeling really good going into Sunday. I'm gonna be happy either way. So that's all that matters, right? Okay. Good. I mean, so one last thing before I think we are ready to wrap up, like. This has been a really short award season. I was just about to say, I don't feel like we've gotten to the point of being like, Jesus Christ, can we stop talking about these movies? Does that mean the shorter Uh, uh, award season was a success? Speak for yourself, (laughs) actually. 
I don't know. Do you guys feel like it's worked uh, to have the shortened award season? I'm mostly glad to go back to the longer one next year just for like having time to talk about all this stuff in this period. Um, but I don't know how everybody else feels. Yeah, I was talking about this um, the other night with some friends who are equally as obsessive about this stuff as we are. And I think it's both been a positive and negative. I think from a very practical work, you know, and industry standpoint, it's been kind of a disaster because it's just shortened everything and people are freaking out running around between Sundance and Oscar luncheons and all that stuff. But I think also, you know, kind of good to like keep that momentum going, get it over with when people are still kind of still seeing these movies for the first time. You know, again, the Oscars 20 years ago, that broadcast was on March 26th. If you can, I mean, <laughs> that, feels imagine. that feels like torture. Yeah. That said, I, I mean, I can't even imagine. I mean, there was I mean, there was barely like an Internet then. So whatever. But um but that said, I think it also forced everything to kind of snap into place very quickly in terms of what might win or, you know, what seemed like a definite win. And I, I think maybe sometimes um, uh, an underdog can benefit from more like of wiggle time, you know, yeah. more campaigning yeah, yeah. time, more time to sort of just insist its way into people's heads. Would Moonlight have won if they had moved it up three weeks or two weeks or whatever? I don't know. You know, um, so I think I think I think it's been a good and bad. But I agree, Katie, that I'm not um, I'm not going to be sad to have it pushed back again uh, next year yeah even just it was uh when we were trying to fit the shorts into our schedule last week that i was like god there's just not enough time for any of this stuff so yeah um for us alone we thank the academy for pushing it back well because they're not even that short <laughs> no no <laughs> never are <laughs> uh any final words anything for the ceremony you're looking for um i am going with joe reed's prediction that billy eilish will, pr- will premiere the bond song which will be fun and then if she doesn't it's still Billie Eilish at the Oscars which is going to be wild wait somebody said that she's going to was this a joke somebody I saw on Twitter somebody said that she's going to sing Yesterday by the Beatles over the In Memoriam oh maybe that's right anyway that uh, would be very interesting connection like connection of like Gen Z and dad rock stuff <laughs> would it be tacky if she sang a song called No Time to Die over the In Memoriam oh yikes 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 <laughs> Uh, it's a great lineup of presenters. I'm really excited about who they have uh, presenting. So, who, you know. who are you psyched about? Um, I don't know. Anthony Ramos. Yeah, <laughs> like, I can't wait for some in the Heights promo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Beanie Feldstein's a great pick as well. I think that'll be really fun. Um, you know, it's it's a Keanu Reeves could tell us we're all great and we'll feel good about ourselves. That could be great. <laughs> Kelly Kelly Marie Tran is such a great pull. Uh, so you know, there's, there's some good good names up here, um, unexpected ones that I'm happy to see. Do you think they told Kelly Marie Tran, okay, so we are gonna mostly cut you from Rise of Skywalker, but Oscar presenter, <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna walk up to the mic and then Dominic Monaghan is gonna come out of the wings and read all your lines for you. Oh God, yeah. Woof. Hey, can I plug? Um, can I just quickly plug? Um, first of all, go to our site during the Oscars. We're going to have all kinds of amazing coverage in real time. And then after the Oscars, our live stream is going live with Kat Sadler and Karama Brown from the red carpet. I will be there at the start of it to talk about all the hopefully crazy things that have happened and surprises and shocks. Richard will be coming in to, uh, to weigh in later on. And then, uh, and then we've got you know the usual Mark Seliger portraits of everybody looking glamorous, holding their Oscars. We're going to have a new thing of um, uh, video portraits that we're doing with Instagram. So it's going to be even bigger and better than than usual. So hopefully, all our little gold men listeners will uh, check us out. Yeah, please. That just made me realize we don't have a name for our fandom. 
little goldies. Ooh. What are we? What, what are we? All right, official official call for submissions. This is what little we'll do in the off season. Is, little monsters, little is monsters taken. not not taken. Um, and then also, as I said, we will be recording uh, the Monday after the Oscars before we all fly bleary-eyed back to our respective homes. So um, look forward to that. And then we're going to take the week after the Oscars off, just like all the stars going. Hopefully, we're all going to spa retreats. I don't know about you guys, but uh, then we'll be back in full force because you know what's right around the corner? The Emmys. Get Eey. ready. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, as Mike said, um, you can find us uh, at VanityFair.com. We have a lot of really fun pre-Oscars coverage coming up, including uh, Richard's recap of the 2000 Oscars and a, um, a gallery of what everyone wore on that red carpet, which is going to be eye-popping, I'm sure. And then you can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of what will happen when we all gather to record our post-Oscars episode on Monday morning goes to Mike Hogan. It almost feels like it would be an act of really serious cruelty. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. From PRX.